Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, this is Rob Moore and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is going to be the shortest introduction in history because the man you're about to hear me interview is John Chalice and he is famously famous for one role. He's done actually many films and TV shows, but most famously Boise from Only Fools and Horses. So no long intros. Let's get straight into my interview with John Chalice. So, Piers Morgan's uh, evening show. Ah. Last night. What's your report on it? Frightful. I thought it was awful. Ah. I turned it off. I mean, I was quite interested to see, because you know he does this good morning thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because he's such a football person, they decided after the uh, England game, they'd do the evening thing with Susanna Reid as well, who's Mm. his partner, and um, he just never stopped talking. Oh. And he's... Just so arrogant. I mean, oh, God, dear. Unwatchable. Yeah. Ah, that's a shame. It is, isn't it? Make quite a good living talking, though. It it? certainly certainly has. John, thank you for doing the podcast. Uh, Have I done it already? Ah, well, thank you for for being here to start. (laughs) So, um, you're obviously famously known for one main character. Mm. Um, How have you managed to adapt and continue your career afterwards? Um, being, I guess, what you could say is pretty typecast. Yeah, I do. Typecast is a funny word, you know. And um, correct me, by the way, if I get any of this wrong. So, no, yeah. so, I was going to say typecast is a funny word to me, you know, because I'm not that type at mm. all. Um, it just so happens that um, uh, I got well known for a particular role, mm. um, and therefore, people that's that's how people see me. Yeah. I mean, Peter Bowles, um, who I worked with a couple of times over the years. Uh, Sort of summed it up. He said because he's he's known for one particular type of role. I suppose mm. you say. Yeah. He said the trouble is that if you're any good, and you get into something that is quite good that people want to watch, that's it yeah. for the rest of your career. Yeah. You know whatever else you do. Mm. Um, so I mean I wouldn't say I was typecast at all really, um, mm. but that's sort of how people see you because they see you being successful in a, in a particular role. So oh I've got a role like that. So. Mm. Uh, so he must be the man with the job, yeah. do you know? Um, but to me, it's, uh, I should be so lucky, really. When you start off in the profession, you want to, uh, I mean, you sort of dream about becoming a sort of a household name and well-known for something. Mm. And, um, and it happens. You can't suddenly say, oh, no, 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 I don't want it anymore. And, yeah. uh, you know, because I've been in the business over 50 years and I've um, been up and down and round about and in and out, <laughs> you can imagine. And, you know, I've worked all over the lots of places, different places in the world and uh, National Theatre and Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm. But nobody wants to talk about that. No. <laughs> well, I'd, I'll happily talk about that because you've been in a, a lot of yeah. theatre and film and TV, haven't you? A lot. Yes, I have. Yes. I, I mean, uh, I've been uh, 
I've been lucky uh, most of the time, I suppose, in the right place at the right time. Um, and I grew up in the theatre. That's what I first saw when I was about six years old. Mm. And my, my parents took me to see Peter Pan. And it just blew me away yeah. in, the, in the modern, modern parlance. I just was transfixed by, by this sort of, I mean, I describe it as a sort of moving chocolate box cover. You know, it's those pretty chocolate box covers you used to have. Mm. And, and uh, I was hypnotized by it, and um, particularly by Captain Hook, who I thought was just fantastic. Yeah. And that's who I wanted to be. And that, and that looking back, as I'm writing my autobiography, um, looking back, I think that was it. That was the start of it really and so you always knew that's what you wanted to do there was never a sh un you were unshakably I want to be an actor I want to be in theatre no I want to be it's Captain question, Hook by the way I want to be oh, Captain right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was Captain Hook for about three months yes. of my life and drove yeah. my mother insane but, uh, <laughs> but I was dashing about an imaginary sword and uh, a tricorn hat you know and being mm. horrible to other children uh, <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean that and I found I I had a facility for mimicry. I, I was fascinated by other people, um, and I'd copy them, which again drove my parents insane. Yeah. Because I'd hear uh, an accent, and I'd try to copy it, you know. Um, which ones are your favourite? Favourites? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I suppose, I don't know. I, know, I like, uh, my father came from Sh uh, Sheffield. I'm not there, they don't like that, you know. <laughs> so I said, oh, thanks, this is about stop it, you know. <laughs> but my mother came from West Country and um, in Bath in Somerset, and she had a lot of mad uncles, farmers out in the country, and uh, of course, Tony Leary talked a bit like, more than I was doing, stop it. <laughs> you see, but, uh, but that, that was me, and I, I just, here is, and also not only the way people spoke, more particularly about the way people smoke, spoke, but also uh, Freudian slip there, the way they smoked too. <laughs> yeah. in, in the good old days when you were allowed to smoke, mm. I don't know, you probably don't, you're far too young to remember, but uh, people used to smoke in the most extraordinary ways. It was sort of extravagant <laughs> type smokers. Yeah. And a very secret hole in the corner type smoker. Mm. And I, yeah. I'd, I'd practice what was your that. style? Mine? Um, I don't know. I'd put an ashtray somewhere and I'd never get any ash in it. So <laughs> it's quite, quite extravagant, I suppose. Um, mm. And occasionally, of course, you'd, you know, particularly in cinemas, for some reason, your fingers would slide down to the burnt end of the cigarette. <laughs> and then the cigarette would fall and start rolling down the, the slope. Of the, I mean, it's all those things that just amuse me, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, my dad was was a great humorist. He, um, he loved, uh, strangely, American humor. Robert Benchley, the Marx Brothers, all that. Mm. And he, he sort of introduced me to those as well. And, uh, and we grew, I grew up with The Goon Show, Spike Milligan's crazy anarchic show. And mm -hmm. I loved all the voices, Peter Sellers' yeah. voices. Hello, Katine, how are you today? <laughs> you know, I could do all those sort of things. And, uh, and I was desperate to do them because, mm. uh, he was my hero, you know, and, uh, and my dad introduced me to a French comedian called uh, Jacques Tati, Monsieur Hulot, wonderful character, you know, I was just riveted by him, and, and again, I wanted to be him, so I practiced being Monsieur Hulot. Mm. So it was absolutely natural that um, I finished up doing what I did. Mind yeah. you, I was put off it, and uh, I had a false start, and I became uh, article to an estate agent's firm. Yeah, I remember reading, reading but, that. Um, 
I mean, it's hopeless. Because everybody said, oh, you've got to have a safe, steady, secure job. You know, uh, my parents particularly were very worried about me because I didn't show any interest in following dad in the civil service or right. any of that. I just like mucking about and mm. uh, pretending to be other people. Did that cause friction when you were younger? Or? Yeah, it did a bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then my mother, I think, was secretly quite pleased because she, um, she did a bit of amateur work. Yeah. So she had um, a bit of the actress in her. But my dad was a self-made man and believed in, uh, he had a very strong work ethic. And he, um, he produced a child that did no work whatsoever, really. But just, as I say, mucked about most of the time. Mm. I was quite good at sport. Um, I might have, might have become a cricketer or something like that. It was the other thing I might have done. Yeah. But I also picked up a guitar. It's the start of rock and roll in the late 50s and formed a little band. So I needed to perform. But uh, that's the other thing I wanted to be, was a lead guitarist in a rock and roll band. Right. And you, ba you basically got <coughs> to make a living out of experimenting and playing and being creative and doing all the things you wanted to do? Yeah, no, I was I got school, I impersonated the masters and uh, I was in all school plays. And now you're getting paid for it. <laughs> no, no, now I'm getting paid, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And I was uh, seeing the most natural thing in the world to me, to be mm. on a stage. Yeah. Uh, being somebody else, very odd, mm. really. Um, my first serious part of school uh, was that of a girl. I was very good. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, I graduated to older women after that, and um, <laughs> and then I started playing men. And um, yeah, it just seemed uh, the way to go. But as I say, everybody put put, put money off it. The headmaster, mm. my parents, and then. Uh, and did you feel like that squashed you, or did you did that make you want to go and do it even more? Well, I I just um, I reverted to type. I was sitting in an office really, and. Uh, I started inventing spurious deals um, with imaginary uh, clients, and, <laughs> and I got sacked. Right. You know, and um, that's convenient. So I wandered about for a bit, and then uh, eventually found an investment for a travelling children's theatre. It was on the road the whole time, different town every day, mm. doing little um, plays like Pinocchio at in schools. Mm. And I sort of ran away to join the circus, I suppose, really, because I, I just. I was still living at home, I, but I was about 19, and my parents um, were away, and I just went and did this audition and went off to Birkenhead and joined a travelling children's theatre. Mm. And that was it. And then I, I graduated to repertory, and I did three or four years of that. Then I got in the West End, then I got in the Royal Shakespeare, Shakespeare Company, and, uh, and then, uh, then television came over the horizon. Yeah. And uh, here I am. Mm. And here you are. So I have this belief that if anyone's got this thing inside them, whether it's acting, impersonating, being funny, any kind of creative, I think you know when you've got this thing mm. and then society <coughs> convinces you, well, that's risky, you better go and do architecture or be a doctor. Mm. Um, what would you say to that person that, like you, had this non-standard profession or passion that you wanted to do? Would you say to them, just go for it? Or do evenings and weekends? Because in a way, it could be risky. I mean, your career isn't one that one would necessarily reverse engineer and model like a doctor or a dentist, are they? No, no, it's not. It's a lot easier uh, <clears throat> when I was young because if you had anything about you at all, uh, the word would get around and you'd get passed around the repertories, which is the early part of, of my life, because you were useful. Mm. 
because you could get up and say a few lines and you could put a beard on, pretend to be an old person. And also you could do stage management. So they had two for the price of one, you mm. see. Um, it's not so easy these days, but um, all I'd say is if, you, um, if it's in you, do it. Mm. If you want to do it, try it. I mean, you may fail, but as the man said, try again, fail better, you know. Um, yeah. but, but do try it. I mean, so many people don't mm. and regret it. Mm. I remember uh, a girlfriend I had, uh, and she had an uncle who was um, Johnny Nice man, and, uh, and he was a bank manager, sort of um, the Coots banking empire. I mean, successful, very successful. But um, we'd go down there for the weekend, and uh, he'd have rather too much to drink, probably. And then he'd put on opera records and he'd start to sing along with the tenor part in this sort of cracked tenor and then burst into tears. And, uh, and I saw this happen two or three times. And eventually I said, why do, you, why do you always burst into tears? Oh, it was wonderful music and all that. Is that it? He said, no. He said, it's because I never tried it. He mm. said, I always wanted to sing. I always wanted to sing this, you know, whatever it was, yeah. this, this particular opera. Mm. And he never did it. And same as me, I mean, in a different generation, but, uh, but he was put off it because it was considered not what you do. Mm. So, so he went into the, the family banking firm and was very successful, as I say, but always regretted that he, he hadn't done yeah. it, hadn't tried it. Yeah, it's funny that because um, I've found, and I've <coughs> since read up on this, you know, those burning dreams we have, the play for the creative, they don't seem to ever go away. No. So no, you might as well it. start now and early. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be 70 and wishing you did. Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, should I go to drama school? Should I say, well, if you want to go to drama school, do it. Audition, uh, you know, and learn some uh, speeches and go and have a go. Mm. I mean, you may, you may go to drama school and find that you don't want to act at all, you, but you like to produce, mm. for instance. You'd like to um, be a stage manager. I mean, there's all sorts of things. A voice coach. All sorts of things, dance, singing, to discover all those things, but, but just have a go is yeah. what I'd say. So I guess a lot of people <coughs> get quite <coughs> crippled by fear. <coughs> and I guess as an actor, and I guess it's probably more raw and visceral in the theatre, you must have had to deal with the fear of rejection, getting heckled, getting rejected from parts. Mm. Has that been a monkey on your back ever? No, I just get annoyed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't take it in? <coughs> um, no, 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 not really. Um, I just, you know, obviously, I mean, every actor has great uh, disappointments and you go out for things you know you're right for, you know you can do terribly well and you don't get it. Mm. You know, um, and you, you feel rejection and some people, it's a very cruel profession from that point of view. So you've got to be quite tough, really. Uh, but. Were I think was tough, or did it toughen you? No, I, th I think my, my 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 luck was that I never took it very seriously. Right. I think I think it um, it's very difficult for people who are absolutely dedicated and very serious about mm. their It's like your golf swing, you know. I don't know if you're yeah, I do play people golf. who play golf yeah. and they have that kind of swing where they're so rigid. It was, but you know, and and one shot just sort of fades off the fairway and yeah. it's like apocalyptic <laughs> as far as I can, it's the end of that the world. That was me when I was a teenager, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I was a bit the same at tennis, mm. I'm just saying, it was, it was my best game I suppose. But, um, but no, no, I think, I think uh, you can't possibly take it seriously, no. uh, really. 
dressing up and pretending to be other people, <laughs> wearing colourful clothes and projecting your voice all over the place. It's mm. ridiculous. Um, so as long as you have that, it's sort of quite a defen good defence mechanism. Yeah. So, so you're going to get rejected like everybody else, but you just go, bollocks. Mm. You know, I think something else around the corner. I <laughs> think there's more wisdom in that than maybe you're letting on because I've found the more you want something and you, you place importance, this is a big thing in my life, this could be the turning point, this could be where everything gets massive, you just put a whole load of pressure on yourself. Mm, mm, so yeah. what you seem to naturally do is not take things too seriously. Mm. But actually, if you have that attitude, of course you try hard, but mm. you don't take the outcome too seriously, you're probably going to be better anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yes. Yes, I don't, I don't think it changes the fact that you still like to do uh, what you do, mm. you know, and, uh, and you seem to be surrounded sometimes by people who are trying to stop you doing what mm. you do. Mm. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, now, as I say, and, and I've always, I've always sort of, uh, the same at school, I couldn't concentrate for more than five minutes, really, on, on anything. And uh, I always thought there was something else. I mean, and halfway through, I opened a garden centre, for instance, because I was interested in gardening. I thought, well, I would say, I'll, I'll, do, I'll open a garden centre. But it was a disaster, really, financially, because um, I'm, I'm no businessman at all. But I learnt an awful lot about gardening. And luckily, sort of like fate on the end of it, a director I knew sort of um, came up and um, offered me a part in a six-part Doctor Who right. in the mid-70s. Mm. And it really kick-started me, you mm. know, um, because I'd given up, I'd just gone to that, oh, I can't be bothered with all this. But it was just the happiest job I think I ever did. Yeah. That. Mm. And, um, and it was a launch pad, really, because a lot of good things happened after that. For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk, and he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496. 878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. Mm. Uh, but I needed a kick in the right direction, really. Stop being so lazy and uh, feeling sorry for myself. And, and who gave you that? This director called um, Douglas Canfield, mm. who I'd. Uh, I'd worked for several times before, um, and because uh, I said, "Oh no, no, I'm not, I'm not sort of doing acting anymore," he said, "Don't be stupid. Yes, you are. Of course you are." <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> oh yes. No, I think it's, as I say, it's in you, and uh, and, and it, it was cathartic because that job made me sort of realise that that this is what I was I was best at. Mm. And what I really enjoyed doing. Mm. So, um, mm. 
for people who may not know, um, can you just talk us through how you landed the part, your most famous part as, as Boise? Hey. And, um, mm. yeah, and in taking us through that journey, <coughs> was there a point when you thought, this is going to be huge? Or wasn't there? Um, yeah, I, uh, it was lucky that I, I got it, really, right time, right, right place, I suppose. Uh, I'd actually um, got into a, a repertory company, a British-American repertory company. The idea was that uh, half the company was English, half American. We do an equal amount of time in, in both countries. And these are two plays by Tom Stoppard, uh, his early stuff. And uh, I'd been in the West End uh, in a play called Dirty Linen, which was his. And, uh, and, uh, and he asked me to be part of this repertory company. And, uh, and uh, I finished up on Broadway. Broadway. What? Uh, with this successful Tom Stoppard play. And then he went on tour. And uh, I got seduced by America, really. I, I thought this is where the... This is the first time I'd been there, you know, and this is where the future lay, and a lot of people saying nice things. And, uh, but I had to sort of stick around to, to meet the right people. And I ran out of money, really. Uh, things weren't quite working out how they might have done. And uh, my agent um, said, you've been offered a part in a new comedy series in, uh, in England. You're coming back to do it or not? Near as a toucher, I stayed in, in America. But I thought, I'd better keep my hand in here. Uh, just in case. And uh, this is a part of a new series called Citizen Smith, uh, starring Robert Lindsay, written by a man called John Sullivan. And it was a part of a policeman. He was a, he was a quite a sort of slidey, sort of bent policeman type. And uh, I just remembered a character I knew in a, in a pub in southwest London who was who had this curious way of talking, like this, you know, you know, man of mystery, bit of a Walter Mitty type, you know. Um, so I sort of um, invested this policeman with a bit of this, particularly this voice, you see, like this goes quite well with the policeman. So, I played, so you brought this to the party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played an awful lot of policemen. I was mm. sort of thinking, I've got to do something different. The result was John Sullivan came up to me after and said, he said, I really like what you've done with that policeman. He said, I'm going to try and use it again one day. Yeah. And I went, oh, thank you very much. Didn't think any more of it. And a year later, I was in the National Theatre by this point, trying to become a proper actor. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this envelope came through the door and it was a script written by John Sullivan. Same producer, director, a man called Ray Butt. And it was a new comedy series called Only Fools and Horses. Would I play this one scene, just one scene, little cameo role of a second-hand car dealer? And I tied up the two things. Oh, I see. Oh, perhaps he has remembered it. So I had to change it a bit, but uh, I just did this one scene. Fine, nobody said anything except thank you and goodbye, really. And um, I guess it was about nine months later, this second series came up. Would I come back and do another episode? This time the character is much more heavily featured. And then uh, in the next series there was another episode and, uh, and Marlene had been mentioned, you see, and then Marlene became this sort of her indoors character. And then Marlene appeared about the fourth, fifth, fourth or fifth series. By this time it was about 1985. And uh, I suppose it was then you realised that you were onto something mm. because we all noticed it. 
people started coming up and saying they love the show and shaking our hands and saying thanks for the laughs and so on, which had really never happened to, to anybody b before to such an extent. Mm. So that was the first feeling, I think, that we were really onto something. Yeah. And, um, and then it became year after year, all through the 80s, I mean, it got bigger and bigger and millions and millions of viewers. Mm -hmm. Only three channels, though, this time, yeah. which was crucial, but we were getting 15 million, um, amazing, wow. absolutely yeah. amazing. But uh, relatively few shows, only about six per year, mm. plus maybe a, a Christmas special as well. Then we started doing more specials and... But you just realised you were you were onto something big, you know, yeah. because the the other thing that happened was the periphery characters. It was uh, myself um, and Trigger, yeah. uh, Kenny McDonald, who played um, Mike Fisher, the proprietor of the Nags Head, um, Mickey Pierce to a lesser extent. They suddenly got into more and more episodes, mm. and they became more and more part of the stories. And there was always a scene in the Nags Head yeah. um, for us. And, um, and it was a great ensemble piece by the end, mm. you know. And do you think they were written in more because you became really popular or because they wanted to evolve the show, or both? I think, I think it, was, it, was, it was a natural, um, a natural way for the show to evolve, mm. I think. Because it started off really with just with um, Dell and Rodney and Grandad and Paul Leonard Pierce passed away, I think about the fourth series, that was a big shock. Mm. And then uh, Uncle Albert came into it, so you had the three of them back in yeah. Nelson Mandela Mansions. Um, and that was it, because you always say you need the young fool, the middle fool, and the old fool. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, that, and then you've got some, uh, some really great situations. Mm. But of course, they have to then spread out where are they going, where they are down the pub. That's the, the nag's head became the, the fulcrum of the show, really. Yeah. Um, and you know, all the, all the old lags were in the... <laughs> in the next head and then the mm. girls came in and uh, yeah. so they got married and that you know so, so, so you can see the whole thing sort of mm. evolving um, because because it's hard to write up to that standard mm. you know week after week yeah and I know John uh, John struggled on a couple of occasions because uh, he was an absolute perfectionist I mean he couldn't bear to sort of put out anything that he thought was um, second rate mm. So rather than do that, he said, oh, no, I'm not doing a series. Uh, not doing a series. I'll do a special. I won't do a series. But then the next year, he'd have the muse had come back and he'd write six episodes. Mm. But uh, very lucky to have been uh, part of it, really. And then, uh, and then of course, uh, he thought, well, this can't get any better. And then uh, eventually it was all over. Years going by, mind you, they, they won all the money. This time next year, brothers will be millionaires, and they yeah. became millionaires. An extraordinary thing. Um, it's, a great, it's a great compliment, really. That, that last scene when uh, when Dell and uh, no, Rodney had won won the money, they bought the rolls from Boise, and uh, he came back to the nags head, and all the Denisons sort of got up and gave him a round of applause. Very moving, including Boise reluctantly at the mm. end. And we were just uh, filming that last, that last episode, the studio in Wood Lane, and the extraordinary thing was that the uh, studio audience got up and gave us a standing ovation. And that had never been heard of at BBC mm. before. And it went on and on and on. And we're standing there going... Because <laughs> nobody wanted it to finish, really. No. 
Um, Maybe it's good to go out that way, though. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, five years later, it came back again, mm. and they'd lost all the money because uh, John was always under such pressure to write some more. Um, and uh, we lost a few of the cast by then. Uh, I mean, I thought that was the right ending that they finished up back at square one. Yeah. But it was still massive. I mean, uh, that's extraordinary. How many series were there in the end? Only about seven. Yeah. Seven series and a ten, um, ten maybe, maybe more than ten specials. Mm. I mean, big say so, so they'd be an hour long, an hour and a half long or something. Mm. And it's still going. Mm. Of course, I mean, it's still on every day. Yeah. And then, lo and behold, after that, um, you know, me and Marlene did a spin-off series. Mm. Which is, that's just amazing. Um, and that was all. Uh, that was all inspired by the fact that I'd moved out of London um, and we found this extraordinary place in uh, Herefordshire. Mm. And John Sullivan came to a party there and uh, we just thought, I wonder what would happen if the character did this, what, what John's done. Why would Boise leave London? No idea. <laughs> Until he realised that, of course, he was being chased by the Driscoll brothers and, mm. uh, and that was it. So, amazing. Mm. Did that, uh, would you say, it changed your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah? It changed everybody's life, I think. How was, it, how was your life different, you know, once it got big? Well, because, uh, because you're meeting an awful lot of people that, uh, that um, would have walked past you in the street and um, not even noticed who you were before. Mm. But everywhere you went, people would smile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, all these stories about, God, it really helped me through a difficult time. And, mm. It's an extraordinary story about this, uh, this woman who, um, whose son had had a terrible motorbike accident and uh, was in a coma. And uh, she swore that it was only fools and horses that brought him out of it. Wow. Because they kept playing the theme tune and the episodes that he liked over and over and again, and gradually mm. he came out of it. And she swore it was the, the show that done. And those sort of stories, you know, mm. feel there's a real value to it there. Uh, amazing, no, I, I mean, uh, we, we all knew that whatever, however good we were, wherever we were, you know, it was the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Broadway, whatever it was, however good we were, we were never going to do anything as famous as that. Yeah. You know. And how was that to move on from that, knowing that maybe that was the apex? The apex. Um, Is that how I said it? <laughs> no, it's a good word though, apex, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Apex. Uh, I, I don't know when you just hope something else is going to happen, you know. Um, and in my case, it did with the spin-off, of course. Uh, and also this sort of this collateral stuff the whole mm. time. People want to want you to go and speak places. Yeah. Um, I'd always written stuff down. I wrote um, a whole bunch of stuff when we moved uh, down to Herefordshire, um, a lot of which went into the green, green grass. Um, and so I, I always thought there was going to be something else, and uh, but but, but there's always something. Always somebody always wanted you to do something, to appear somewhere, to have to speak. So he had all that, all that life as well, plus um, yeah. plus other bits and pieces along the way. Um, I did a whole series of Alan Akebourn plays with Sue Holderness, who played Marlene. We worked very well together. Yeah, we're still great chums. Uh, so there was always something. Mm. There's always something going on. Yeah, it's funny how I initially asked about. You know, had you maybe put yourself in a box um, for the rest of your career, but on the flip side of it, 
keeps giving you the gift of all these opportunities. Yeah, it does. It 20, does. It does later. close a few doors, I guess, because you're always associated with it. Mm. I remember a friend of mine who was a director who was doing a lot of drama. And you think, oh, that'd be the way to go, do a bit of drama instead of comedy. And he said, he says. He said, I'd love to have you in London's Burning or something like that, but I can't have this comedy face walking on. People <laughs> yeah. go, oh, it's him from, uh, you know. And it's a, it's a sort of reality show, mm. show like, like that, you know. So, so those doors close, but other ones you never expect open mm. for you, yeah. you know, because you're this bloke off the telly and uh, a bit of a novelty, mm. really, for people. And everybody wants to know the stories. Yeah. So that's what this show is about, you mm. know, really. So I'm a big fan of autobiographies, and I know you've got your um, epic two-parter. Um, mm -hmm. So without ruining too much from your books, because I'd like to let everyone know about that at the end, but can you give us a couple of maybe stories that people don't know about, maybe about you or Only Fools and Horses, mm. maybe something in the book that's interesting? Uh, interesting. Mm. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I met the Beatles. Yeah? And um, I should have been in... Uh, in the Magical Mystery Tour, right. I got the part, um, but I couldn't do it because uh, because I had already agreed to do something else, and the dates clashed by two days, so I never got to work with them. But I, mm. I sort of, I always felt I had a sort of rapport with John Lennon, yeah, because we both loved the Goon Show for mm. a start, and uh, and it was very funny, uh, really. I made one of the great gaffes of my life, I suppose, quite innocent about. Because he says, oh, John, have you got a favourite Beatles tune, you know, which we can put on the show? And I actually said, uh, actually, I prefer the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and, and of course, I just went, oh, what have I done? Um, it's a long pause, and eventually Lennon said, actually, I think you're right, I prefer them sometimes <laughs> too, you know. And, uh, and he said, anyway, come on, we'll have a blast. We'll all get in the coach and we don't know what we're doing. We haven't got a script or anything <laughs> like that, you know, all of us. Oh, I thought, Christ, I've actually uh, I got to work with these guys, you know. But as I say, I couldn't do it. Mm. The dates clashed and the BBC wouldn't release me. Yeah. <coughs> so talk about disappointments. Yeah. I mean, that's a major one. Um, and, uh, oh, I don't know. Um, story about uh, Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, our first film part I ever had. Quite a nice part, sort of a, sort of a military type uh, figure and uh, I went off the first day's filming. You know, it was a Susan George was in it, Harry Andrews, Toshiro Mifune and some Chinese Kung Fu artist whose name I can't remember. Or somebody. And, and they broke the hotel up that night, first night. Wow. And the reason for that was Oliver Reed, who was slightly drunk. <laughs> really? How unusual. Yeah. yeah. Um, he went up to this uh, Chinese kung fu artist and said, uh, you're, uh, you're a fraud, darling. And you're just a bloody film star. You're probably gay. And you're, you're absolutely no good. Come for us all. And the Chinaman went, ah, you see? And he went up to this table and he went, da! And the table went, tsh! <laughs> he off. Hotel, well, they're one of the little occasional tables. Oh, darling, anybody can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and it practically broke his wrist. And then all hell broke loose, and they started chucking furniture around, and everybody said, and they just smashed up the hotel. Mm. And in my naivety, because I'd never done these things before, I thought, but, 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 
but that's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, we're supposed to be making a film. Everyone's going, poor old innocent thing. And, uh, <laughs> and in fact, it turned out, I think, that the film was actually a uh, tax loss for the company, because right. nobody got paid. Wow. But I mean, all I remember is, um, is Oliver Reed just sort of going, <laughs> it, was a, it was a joke, the whole thing was a joke. Mm. So that was a bit disillusioning, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. So the books, the books really is full of those sort of stories. Mm. Um, but not only showbiz stories, but uh, stories about uh, my relationship with my parents, you know, um, and all through school, of course, how it happened and sort of things that happened along the way, mm. you know. Um, triumphs, disasters. I love that sort of quote. I was, I was in uh, if isn't it? If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat, treat those two imposters just the same, <laughs> and I would say you're a better man than I am. <laughs> but no, it's you know it's full of, full of oh god, what do I do that for? Mm. But um, some some nice bits as well, some nice uh, jolly bits as well. Mm. Before I came here, I, I gave the opportunity for some of my um, followers to ask some questions. Um, and someone wanted to know if there was a particular failure or really hard event in your life that maybe you found the hardest to, to overcome and then how you overcame it? Um, I know it's not like the most cheery question, but... No, it isn't. No, I swear, no, I went through a very bad time. Um, not, I don't know how bad it was, really. Um, uh, one of my third marriage just broken up um, in appalling circumstances. Um, I basically discovered my wife with somebody else, uh, which is not what you want to do. Mm. And uh, both my parents died, not because of that, but this happened, all happened within two years. Wow. And suddenly I had no backstop and I was completely sort of adrift um, and not in a good state. And uh, as usual, the best place to be was in the pub, you know, with the lads and nothing mattered anymore. And uh, the extraordinary thing was, though, I was, I was working. I mean, the work was going very well. Personally, I was in a terrible state, really. Um, so I didn't sort of realise until, um, until later. Uh, but luckily, uh, I suppose I've always been lucky in that respect. Um, I met my present wife, uh, Carol. Mm. Um, who was also slightly adrift. And um, it was one of those, where have you been all my life, sort of thing, you know. Mm. Uh, and sort of realisation that you, your judgement was hopeless, mm. really, and these sort of things. It's very, very difficult in this profession, really, because it, they always say an actor should, um, should never have a mortgage. It really shouldn't be married. You should mm. be on the end of a phone and go with the workers. And yes. And then you, 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 you meet a lot of people and form quite intense relationships with them for a short period of time. Then you move on to mm. another set of people. And yeah. So it's a strange business from that point mm. of view. But I think, I think that was the worst time in my life. But as I say, I was very lucky to have met Carol at that time because I was pretty shaky. Was Carol the sort of the turning point that moved you out of it, or was there like a trigger, trigger, trigger moment, or, trigger. Um, <laughs> or you know, or, or how did you get yourself out of that? Because you know, having those three things happen all in two years is, you know, must be really difficult. Uh, I haven't had anything like that happen yet to me in my life. And um, was there, was there a day where you're like, right, come on, have a word with yourself? Let's. Yeah, the, the, the great thing really was. I mean, the lucky thing was that I knew what was happening. 
I didn't just go, well, uh, blah, blah. Yeah. I knew it was wrong. You know, um, and as I say, I had to, I, I had to arrange it a bit anyway, because I was working. Mm. So, so, and I'm not one of those people who can go on stage drunk and do a perfectly good performance. No. I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, perhaps not. Um, but, uh, but no, it was, it was really, uh, as I say, meeting the right person who was willing to take me on and be patient mm. and then help me through it, mm. I guess. And then I suddenly realised that the qualities that had been missing in any other relationship I'd had with a woman. And uh, so that was, that was very lucky. It was exactly the right, right place, right time again. So yeah. I've been very lucky like that. Mm. So I've got some more quicker fire ones. I mean, look, you don't have to do them quick. You can do them slow if you want. Your favourite storyline or memorable moment on Only Falls and <coughs> Horses? I mean, yeah, I, well, I think for the character, um, when he discovered what his first name was, um, it was a seance scene, I think, in an episode called uh, Sickness and Wealth. And uh, there was a seance in the room above the nag's head because I think, I think Del Boy was trying to reach his mother from beyond the grave and mm. something I can't quite remember. But um, the medium, Elsie Partridge, came along and, uh, and there's just this wonderful scene, the seance, and she starts off going... Everyone's going, Christ, somebody's going to appear at any minute. Um, and then uh, it finishes up, she says, I've got a message from, for someone called Audrey. And, and no, Aubrey. So all the lads, we're all sitting around the table like this with our fingers together. Everyone's looking at each other going, Aubrey, This is long pause and eventually uh, Boise says, I am here. <laughs> and it just brought the house down. You know? yeah. um, because it's a brilliant piece of writing. The way it was shot was just fantastic. Mm. Um, but I think for the character, that was it's my favourite my favorite scene. Yeah. Do you know? Um, there's so many, um, the Batman and Robin sequence, yeah. you know. Yeah. Heroes yeah. and villains, I yeah. think, was just, a, again, a classic piece of writing. <laughs> and, uh, and so unexpected, you know. It's, it's all about surprise, isn't mm. it? It's all about ambushing the audience. And, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and he was brilliant at that, John Sullivan. If you hadn't have played Boise, was there any other character you'd have loved to have played? Yeah. Or any character you'd have loved to have played? Yeah, I'd love to have played Marlene. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you'd have been good at it from I your previous know, experience. Right. <laughs> I played a pantomime dame before, you know. Uh, no, no, I, I, oh gosh, that's very difficult. Um, I suppose, uh, no, I, I always liked the trigger character. Yeah. Roger was just uh, so wonderful in that. Mm. Um, uh, just a different planet, wasn't mm. he? Mm. It's funny because he started off being the villain of the piece slightly, um, Trigger, mm. and then uh, Boise came on the scene, so he started to veer off towards this different planet, didn't he? And, mm. uh, <laughs> yeah. and then um, lived in his own, own little world. But mm. uh, I just remember sitting there s listening to him talking about the fact that he had the same broom his whole career. <laughs> yeah. 16 different heads and 14 yeah, different hands. Look after your broom. That's one of the best, yeah. And Nicky going, uh, and your broom will look after you. <laughs> Just. 
I remember sitting there listening to this going, I, we, would, we got the giggles. I mean, yeah. D David and Nicholas and I just couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those where you, you don't know what you're laughing at, you lose sight of what you're laughing at, you just can't, can't stop laughing. Yeah. And, um, God, hilarious. Mm. No, no, I think, I think it was my other uh, favourite character. Really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, have you ever really been focused on the money? Um, or had to be focused on the money because you've got to pay the mortgage, or have you just always been about the work and the art? Oh no, I've always wanted to earn money because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to live in a certain way, mm. um, you know, and earn um, earn money so I can um, I can fund that, mm. you know. Uh, and if it's um, if I earn money by doing something I really love doing, I mean that's a big bonus for mm. me. Um, I did a lot of voiceover work uh, at the end of the 70s and into the 80s. Yeah. In the good old days, uh, charging around the studios in Soho. And uh, I earned quite a lot of money there, but I can't say I love doing it. Mm. Um, because basically you're talking about frozen peas. Yeah. And, and drain, drain clear liquids and, you know, but, but again, it's great because you, you can invent characters, mm. you know, and, uh, and I, I did quite a lot of, uh, of um, voiceovers because uh, because I could do silly voices, mm. you know. but uh, but that was a, that was a great time. I was going out sort of three four times a week, yeah. you know, and a lot of money doing voices. Mm. Mm. Um, no, no, if the two things go together, that's that's perfect mm. uh, for me. But uh, I mean, art is a tart as far as I'm concerned. But, um, <laughs> I mean, if people just sort of uh, throw these things up and say, "Look how artistic it is," I'm going, really? I'm not so sure. <laughs> It's all Emperor's New Clothes to me. Mm. A lot of it. Yeah. You know. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, other than what we talked about before about, you know, following your dream and trying it, have you got any one tip for aspiring creatives and actors and actresses and people who want to follow a dream? Mm. Well, yes, I have. I, I, as we said before, I mean, do follow that dream. If you've got that dream and it's in you and you want to do it, for heaven's sake, do it. Go out and do it. You know, find a way to do it. There's a there's a great <coughs> there's a great um, a brochure, a brochure, I don't know, magazine, whatever it is called, called Contacts. Do you know? And it's full of film companies, um, uh, sound studios, radio um, mm. um, uh, radio contacts, obviously stage and television and so on. Yeah. And it's. Uh, it's a thin, thinnish book, you know, but everything's in there. Mm. So, if you want to just write to every, gone up my leg. Hmm? there's a fly gone up my leg. Oh dear, there's a Has big, it been up there a bit out there. He is, look, a massive, big. He's been crawling That's around the place. Enormous. And I thought something's going up my leg, and I. No, but look, I've nearly, I've half killed him. Look. I know he's not going to recover from mm. going up your leg. Is no, it? no, because might be a wasp or something. Ah, oh, just I got a little bit of a moment there. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, I anyway, feel, I mind. feel quite bad <laughs> now for him. Um, sorry to interrupt you there, but I yeah, know, no, no, they don't sting, do they? <laughs> <laughs> it depends what it is. <laughs> they went up my leg. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just uh, you know get get contacts, write to everybody. Um, get some photographs done, as I say, learn some speeches, go and audition for drama schools and, uh, you know, you need a lot of determination. Mm. Um, I was lucky, really, because I grew up in a, a time when you could just fall into it. Yeah. And if you had anything about you, as I say, you'd, you'd get on. So I never went to drama school. Mm. Um, 
But uh, but these days, I, I guess that's the best showcase. Yeah. Because at least you can get yourself on, people will come and see yeah. it, and uh, hopefully you'll pick up an agent or mm. somewhere. I suppose in the modern day, you get your work out on YouTube, get your work out <coughs> on social yeah. media, there's other ways oh, yeah. to get it seen. Yeah. Okay, great. How'd you like to be remembered? Um, I was somebody who, uh, who gave people pleasure, that's all. Mm. Um, somebody who entertained people. And I made their lives a bit smilier, mm. I suppose. That, that's all, yeah. really. Um, I think I have. I think I've sort of achieved that, mm. really. Well, from what people say. Well, anyway, you're so. a big part of mine and my parents' lives growing up. Oh, um, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, yes. I go, well, I, as I say, I go out and um, sell the books at sort of food fairs and, uh, and uh, garden fairs and all these sort of things um, yeah. and people are very complimentary I have to say mm. um, they outweigh the uncomplimentary people <laughs> by quite a lot so uh, so no it's you it, get it, a few it though do you who give you a bit of I mean yeah well not really uh, not really sort of viciously rude or anything just sort of a sort of a studied indifference yeah. and some carping comments will come in um, I mean a, a woman came out to me and said um, I gather you're some sort of television personality <laughs> But I'm here to tell you, I never watched television and walked off. So <laughs> why, why did she bother to do that? <laughs> yeah. Just walk on by, you know. Mm. But no, she had to come up and say, say it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so no, there are very few of those, I must say. Mm. Um, I take it there'll never be any more Only Fools and Horses. No, I think because uh, John Sullivan yeah. uh, passed away, what, six, seven years ago or mm. something? Yeah. Which is a terrible, terrible loss, mm. I think, for, for everybody, not, not just for us. Yeah. But he had so much more to give, I think. Mm. Um, so I think it's unlikely because, because you know, you, you wanted always to try and be up towards that standard. Yeah. I think it'd be very disappointing for people if it... Yeah, if it and you could just ruin it, couldn't you? It could yeah. be ruined. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, best advice and worst advice, if you can remember, that you ever got? Oh, uh, the worst advice was a tax, in, tax, uh, tax man a long time ago who said, um, he said, you don't seem to be very successful at um, what you do, Mr. Chalice. Why don't you uh, give it up and do something sensible? <laughs> so I said in a brief illuminated moment, I said, what, and become a tax inspector? And he said, there's no need to be offensive, <laughs> which I thought was very significant. Ooh. Uh, so that was the um, that was the worst advice. The best advice I had. Uh, um, I was an old actor laddie from years ago in Bexhill on Sea, of all places. One of the first theatres I ever worked in. He just said, "Dear boy," he said. Um, he said, "You're a, a very, very, very talented young man." He said, "But you'll have to wait until you are forty years old before you get the recognition." I said. I, I thought, I, well, if I'm not making it by the time I'm 30, I'm giving up. He said, don't, don't give up. I'm telling you, you have to get a bit older. Realise your talent. He was absolutely right. Mm. I was 39 when I got to Only Fools and Horses. Right. So that was like some kind <coughs> of prophecy. He said, wait, wait. He said, wait. Some people, I remember him saying, you know, some people are, are instant and they, and they burn like a firework. Then it's all over. Mm. Some people have a long tail. 
go on and on and on. And you are one of those. <laughs> uh, Oliver Fisher, his name was. Yeah. Um, I always remembered it. Mm. You know. So, so I mean, I suppose that's the best mm. best advice, really. Yeah. <clears throat> to, you know, don't don't give up. Don't don't be patient because because I'm a pretty impatient person, mm. really. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the paradox, isn't it? Most successful people are very impatient, yet they have to learn patience. Yeah. Um, and mm. in this world of instant everything, people, I just see people giving up all the time or yeah. jumping from yeah. thing to thing. Yeah, because they're in instant gratification. Mm. Everybody wants, don't they? And they, and, right. and they see it all edited down and reality TV and, mm. you know, the pop culture, and they think, oh, well, I can get that real quick. I can be like that. And they've yeah. been doing it their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So your autobiography, please, can you tell us about it and what it's called? <coughs> yes, it's in two parts. Um, the first part's called Being Boise. Actually, slightly mistitled, actually. It should be, should be uh, Becoming Boise, really, because it's about the early life mm. and uh, how I got there, stories along the way, it's all the stuff, television I did before that, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, the Beatles story is part of that. Um, yeah. Z cars, I was in Z cars mm. on a semi-regular basis. It's a big thrill. Um, but um, oh, I did the Sweeney. Yeah. All sorts of all Doctor sorts Who. of stuff. Doctor Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Coronation Street mm. and all that uh, sort of thing. And uh, so that, and then it goes up to about the fourth series when uh, Marlene came into the show. I thought that's a good place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> So the first part, being Boise, is pre-Marlene, yeah, and the second part, Boise and Beyond, is post-Marlene. Right, and you can can we get that on Amazon, etc.? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't reckon, recommend that. No, no? I, think, I think you should get onto my website. Right, we need to get directly my, from you. My, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you get a personal dedication, you see. Right. You see, you it's the only place you get it. So you won't get that on Amazon. No. You might get the book a bit cheaper. <laughs> Um, so your website is? My, my, my website is uh, Wigmore Books, which is my publishing company, yeah. W-I-G-M-O-R-E books.com. Yeah. Okay. And um, this is going to sound maybe a bit ridiculous to you, but I'm just going to talk you through my emotions. So all the way up here and probably for about the last few days when I've thought about this interview, I don't want to be another person that asks you to do the voice and say Marlene, but I have to be. So yeah. can we end on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to say a little bit of, uh, with Boise and, you know, and say Marlene. I mean, you did say in one of your videos that you like to make people smile and this yeah. tends to make people happy. So yeah. you'd make one person happy if you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, come along, Rob. If you're not careful, I'll set Marlene on you. And then uh, we'll all have to get our coats and leave very quickly. <laughs> John, that that's perfect. John, thank you very much. Thank you.